Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Assistant Band Director Larry Jenkins calls Tennessee State University's aristocrat of bands a band of firsts. They were the first to be on national television doing a halftime show for the NFL. They were the first HBCU to perform at a presidential inauguration. And now they're the first to win a Grammy for Best Roots Gospel Album for their 2022 album, The Urban Hymnal. Let's get a taste of that album. Here's the song, Dance Revival. This is a sermon, amen to the new kid. I'm all stoned out though, we need a revolution. Every church need a rapper, I'm the new Martin Luther. We can save all the trappers, free the soul of Larry Hoover. Ooh, I just want the tables to flip. I, I, I just put y'all on the drip. Baptist waves on the list. Surf it, wave it, wave Church people keep me on the lip. We can't run, tell me how to live. These are my dancing shoes, these are my dancing shoes. Later this hour, we're re-airing our September episode about AOB's legacy and the rich tradition of marching bands in Music City. But first, let's talk more about the Grammys. Nashville had a big showing at last night's 65th Grammy Awards. Some big-time household names with strong Nashville ties took home major awards, along with a slew of lesser-known but no less respected local artists. The Grammys can be a lot to sort out and make sense of. But we've got WPLN senior music editor Julie Height here to unpack the awards and read between the lines. Julie, welcome back to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Okay, so, you know, before we get into these artists, I just got to know what it's like for you watching an award show like this, whether you're were at a watch party maybe or wherever you were at. Paint the picture for me of what you pay attention to. I mean, it kind of was a low-key watch party, very low-key. I I brought some popcorn and beer over to the house where Holly G lives and hosts many of the artists and activities of the Black Opry. And a couple of those artists were also hanging out with us, Nikki Morgan and Julia Cannon. But I also brought my laptop, Mm -hmm. had my documents open. You know, I was taking notes and... The pre-telecast part of the Grammys had obviously already happened, so a lot of the awards that I was watching for in the genre categories had already been handed out, you know, so I was looking through that stuff, but there was there was a lot to keep an eye on with yeah. the big categories, the speeches, the performances, the fashion choices. We see you, Shania. We see you. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, some some surprising new elements that the Recording Academy incorporated into the show. So let talk to me about those surprises or any of the must-see moments from last night. I mean, there really were some fascinating firsts and some notable new things that happened. The show, just from the start, it kicked off with this really vivid party-starting performance by Bad Bunny, who was doing material from the first Spanish-language album to be nominated for Album of the Year in Mm -hmm. all genres. You know, doing material 
from that album. He came right down the aisles through the middle of the arena with these colorfully attired dancers, and they just drew people in immediately and made their way up to the stage and met his band up there. Full horn section, you know, huge percussion section playing these polyrhythmic grooves. And I think it was it was really significant that they were putting a Latinx star front and center mm-hmm. at the beginning of the show, as opposed to, you know, saying, well, that's for the Latin Grammys, mm-hmm. you know, which has mm-hmm. happened a lot in the past. And I think it also set the tone for just this this high standard of physical performance and movement and dance for the entire the entire show. I mean, there were so many kinds, so many forms of dance alongside the music over the course of that show, particularly during the 50th anniversary tribute to hip hop, you know, when they yeah. when they brought out just so many legends, Melly Mel, Public Enemy, Big Boy, Method Man, Queen Latifah, Missy Elliott, yeah. and had dancers alongside them that were completely in sync with what they were doing and kind of bringing those moments to life, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that that was that was pretty incredible to watch. That was and, an amazing production. And of course, I mean, the win that we were all rooting for in Nashville that we didn't know if it was going to happen or not was the AOB and that roots in that roots gospel category. I mean, they were up against some some pretty big names. Uh, the Gaithers, <laughs> a big big group in Southern Gospel, and Willie Nelson. Yeah. So that that was phenomenal, beating out um, well-known contenders and becoming the first marching band, college marching band, to win a Grammy. And, I mean, back in the fall, it made me think back to um, when I got the chance to walk through the band rooms at TSU with the producers of that album, Sir the Baptist and Larry Jenkins, and learn about how they created that work and how much they, I mean, their aspirations for it. They were talking from the beginning about what ambitions they had for that album and the impact it would have. A hundred years from now, hopefully, there's a kid in a band room with his friend working on music. And if they need a model, we set it up to where they can see, okay, you know what? This is how you do it. So, you know, you've got a lot of thoughts about what the Grammys mean for the music industry, it's particularly like what we have here in Nashville. You know, help us stand in your shoes. What about Nashville made it to that national spotlight? I mean, it was kind of it was kind of interesting to watch how between the nominations and the wins, there was a spotlight on the kind of subtle tweaking of some familiar Nashville forms and templates and tropes. I mean, Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys, he was up in the producer of the year category for all of these projects that he produced that were, you know, country and blues and rock. Um, that he recorded with either elders or emerging voices with real throwback sensibilities in his studio here in Nashville, Easy Eye Sound. And Taylor Swift, she was up for new versions of material that she recorded back in her Nashville era, Mm -hmm. you know, in her country pop era, new treatments, um, new recordings and expanded, you know, videos, that kind of thing. And Brandy Carlisle, not a not a Nashville resident, but someone who has who has really strong professional ties and music making connections here. 
I mean, her wins demonstrated how classic rock is Roots music at this point. Mm-hmm. I think we'll, we'll, we'll touch more on that a little bit later. But, I mean, there were songs from Marin Morris and Miranda Lambert that, that were nominated, and they were doing new things with these country mythologies. And then Molly Tuttle's nominations in Bluegrass and the all-genre new artist category point to a little bit of a different kind of a breakthrough for an artist coming out of bluegrass. What what does what message does it send with Molly Tuttle's win? Yeah, I mean I I think of her as this artist that came up in this really robust music community of bluegrass, you know, that's big on tradition, big on lineage, big on kind of training up new generations of pickers in the way it's been done and in the canon, in the standards, that kind of thing. Um, so it's a really supportive and celebratory scene, but it can also be a little bit insulated from, you know, from from other music scenes in the mm-hmm. outside world. And in the past, the artists that have kind of broken out of bluegrass to broader popularity, like Alison Krauss or Bela Fleck, you know, they expanded their art audiences by leaning into other stylistic sensibilities. And Molly Tuttle, she can do a lot of things stylistically. She has done a lot of things stylistically, but she entered a bigger spotlight over the last year or so by really leaning into her contemporary take on straight ahead bluegrass and kind of working with time-tested songwriting templates and doing the thing that's really expected of the greatest bluegrass musicians playing. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> capital P playing, mm-hmm. really shredding, with her flat picking on guitar. Now, you mentioned Brandy Carlisle. Talk a little bit about the superstar's connection with Nashville. How did how did they fare? Yeah, she has had, I mean, the, the nature of her connection is, you know, she comes here and makes albums and she works with, you know, with with Dave Cobb, the producer, with Shooter Jennings, the producer. They work in one of the historic studios on Music Row and, those are, you know, and and she just is really, really connected and admired and collaborates in, you know, multiple roots music communities and country communities here in Nashville. And going into the awards, I mean, she was really one of the most widely nominated artists and not for the first time. But I think that the way that she wound up being showcased over the course of the show, it was really interesting because it blurred certain lines of the the familiar ways that we see genre and gender, because before the before the telecast began, she'd already won in a couple of rock categories hmm. with her song "Broken Horses," as well as an Americana category for the album that that song is on. And during the show, her wife and their children introduced her so that she could perform "Broken Horses," which. Definitely is a song that I mean it's it's roots rock, but it harkens back to 70s classic rock and glam rock.
And yeah, there were these hotel ads that Brandi Carlile appeared in throughout the show that also depicted her singing her kids to sleep after, I, I mean, the scenario I think was supposed to be after a show, you know, she's mm. coming in with <laughs> her, with her glammed up, you know, country suit, singing her kids to, to sleep. And so we got to, to see her kind of embody the, the old image of the rock hero, you know, in a way where she was also simultaneously a roots star because, you know, mm -hmm. classic rock is roots music now. Yeah. And then she was also, you know, the the heroic family person and and modeling for us queer family, you know, mm -hmm. on on such a national stage, all of those things at the same time. So that made it that, you know, that was really, really rewarding to watch. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's go deeper into the country music categories. As you look over the nominees and the winners, do those tell us anything about the direction of the genre? I mean, there have been years in the past where the winners pointed more toward kind of pushing against boundaries in country music, but this was a year where the nominees and the winners really kind of put on display um, the comfort of the familiar and the sturdy you know, and that that kind of thing, because the winners were, you know, the steady traditionalist Cody Johnson and Willie Nelson won big, you know, for an album and a song that was meditating mm. on mortality. And then another winner was a song that's this kind of two sided tale of being cheated on that was done by Carly Pierce and Ashley McBride. I mean, it is a rarity that two women collaborating would win in those categories, but the theme itself was like a classic and familiar one. And even the performances that they featured, Casey Musgraves doing an acoustic tribute to Loretta Lynn, mm -hmm. you know, and Luke Combs up there as sort of, you know, the everyman star of this moment. Um, he too was hearkening back to the 90s era of, of country, which is classic country at this point in time. Okay, real quick. I've got like 30, 45 seconds left. Well, let's broaden idea of Nashville a little bit. You were watching for artists who might not always be based here, but who have interesting ties to our industry. Any big wins there? Oh, yeah. Money Long in R&B performance. Uh, she won before the telecast. She also has done a ton of work under her real name, Priscilla Renee, as a pop and country and R&B songwriter and has done um, an underappreciated country album called Colored here, like in the late 2010s. So I love to see her getting getting the recognition that she deserves and also the spoken word poetry artist Jay Ivey won. Jay Ivey is also on that AOB album and lived in Nashville and really helped uplift the spoken word scene for several years. Julie Height is senior music writer for Nashville Public Radio. You can find all of her coverage at WPLN.org. And I encourage you today to revisit her feature on the TSU Aristocrat of Bands, who won a Grammy last night. Julie, thanks as always. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to dive into this Grammy award-winning marching band's legacy. And in honor of the award, we're re-airing our episode on Tennessee's rich marching band traditions. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Khalil Colonna, and this 
is Nashville. Tennessee State University's marching band, the aristocrat of bands, made history last night. AOB is the first college marching band ever to win a Grammy for Best Roots Gospel Album for their 2022 album, The Urban Hymnal. Now, in honor of their historic win, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our September episode about Tennessee's rich marching band traditions, starting, of course, with the aristocrat of bands themselves. That was TSU's marching band, the aristocrat of bands, paying tribute to rapper Young Dolph during halftime at the Southern Heritage Classic rivalry game in Memphis between Jackson State and Tennessee State. The roar of the crowd tells you just how special a moment they created on the field. My next guest is behind that energy. Larry Jenkins is the assistant director of bands at Tennessee State University and a former member of the aristocrat of bands. He joins me now. Larry, thank you for being here, my friend. Welcome to This is Nashville. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you as always, my brother. It's a pleasure. It's yes. a pleasure. Just a, a little bit of transparency. When I did my test interview here at WPLN to be the host of this show, you were my first guest, my first interview. Wow, wow this deja vu. Yeah, that's right. Here we are, full circle. <laughs> so, you know, tell me, when you, when you hear clips of the band performing, how do you feel? You know, I, I think I feel really good in knowing that I was a part of that moment, like seeing it all come together, seeing when the students started to click and really get it right. And um, also being able to like hear the crowd and the audience and see how we made people feel. So it always makes me feel good to relive some of those moments, retrace the steps, think about the students who, uh, you know, we were in contact with for that moment because the band changes every year. Mm -hmm. So it's always special. So as we've been discussing, the band released this gospel, wonderful gospel album, The Urban Hymnal. Congratulations on that. Ooh, thank you so much. Thank you. What does it mean to you? Oh, my goodness. This, this album means, honestly, the world. Um, this is such a special project. It's, we call it legacy work, um, something where we're leaving something behind that will touch you know, not only people now, but generations and generations of people to come. This is one that you know, we can all be proud of, our university, all our HBCU community. It, it really it, it hits home hard. It, it's how we say we hit, it hits different. It hits different. It hits different. So how's it hitting differently for your students? How are they reacting to this great accomplishment? You know what? I think once they heard it, especially, it was a wild moment. You know, mm -hmm. um, I, I think about how, how special it is that, that that time when you're in college, but also think about being young, being, you know, 18, 19, 20, whatever the case may be, and maybe not even understanding the gravity of everything at the moment. You know, sometimes we say, oh, you'll get it in 10 years. You know, it'll, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll, it'll hit you a little later. But I think it hit a lot of our students um, and, and, you know, hit hit home. Once the album released and they could hear it, they see themselves on the cover and it's just like a whoa, we made history moment. I mean, this is a major first, right? Absolutely. I mean, that that's nothing new for the AOB. I mean, what are some of the other firsts the AOB has been a part of? 
Oh wow! So um, this is you, know, you 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 you're, you're in the AOB's uh, lane right here. Yeah. But um, you know, we call ourselves a band of first, the first to be on um, national television doing a halftime show for the NFL. Um, you know, we were the first to do the uh, HBCU to do uh, the presidential inauguration, and you know, we've done several since then. This is a a, a first that I think. I haven't heard anything else um, for doing the uh, international soccer game from like New Zealand, Mexico. I mean, just mm -hmm. all types of them. And then, to our knowledge, the first HBCU to play on the White House lawn. We played for President Obama and all the guests for the opening of the um, National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. So, you know, and now the album. That's a whole lot of firsts. So, <laughs> so what does this mean? What does this album mean for the HBCU style of marching band music? And what is its place? in the music industry? Wow. I think the place, I'll start on the back question first. The, the, the places it has is its own. You know, this is brand new. Um, you've heard, you know, maybe a band sampled on something or um, any other time you might put up Apple, Apple Music, Spotify, and hear, um, you know, some clips from someone at a game or fight song. This is totally different. You know, this is its own you know, original music, but it also culturally is uh, fusing, you know, gospel and with that being the case you know we're taking these two just entities that are such a big part of our culture being the hbcu our institutions um specifically tsu in this case and taking gospel music which is such a big part of our culture and heritage and merging these two huge iconic just things together to produce this package which i think creates an amazing amazing new space for um, you know, bands and just culture. Period. My next guest is a part of that culture. Austin Willey, aka A Willey, is a saxophonist, TSU grad, AOB alum, and now part-time teacher at W. O. Smith Community Music School. A Willey, thanks for being here, man. Definitely, man. Thank you for having me. So, you, what memories come to mind when you hear clips of the AOB playing? Ah, man, just listening to that clip that you just played of the AOB. I mean, brought back so. I mean, the energy is unmatched i mean everything from hearing that drum line at your back you know mm. um to hearing that crowd roar when you do that show song and that, that concert song i mean the the dance you know that's the one of the major parts of you know the show style is is the dance routine you know i mean just everything about um, just just that one clip that I heard just brought back so many memories. I could see people like in my imagination rocking out in the crowds and what. Oh have my you. goodness, it's a moment. That's it's a right. Moment. So tell me, how how'd you get started playing in the band? Man, okay, so, um, so I'm from Nashville, born and raised in Nashville, and being in the inner city of Nashville, growing up in the '90s, I mean, TSU is Nashville. You know, it is Black Nashville. And everything um, in Nashville kind of revolves around the energy that comes out of T Tennessee State University, Fisk University. Um, so the marching bands have always been something very special for the city. When when you um, go to a TSU homecoming, being in that environment, seeing all the marching bands come through and be able to showcase what they have, I mean, it, it, it breathes the energy. And it's something that I always wanted to be a part of. Um, I did. I kind of found an alternative route to it because I um, initially played football, and I lived in Smyrna, Tennessee. We ended up moving back to Nashville for some odd family reasons, and um, I couldn't play football anymore because of the rule TWSWA rules. So I ended up just joining the band at White's Creek just okay. to keep busy, you know. 
and I I myself didn't even realize what I was getting myself into when I joined the band. I had always played sax. I was a student at W.O. Smith Music School. Um, but when I got to the band, that's when I truly understood, you know, the culture aspect of being in um, a show-style marching band, a uh, HBU-driven style marching band. And it, that that has led me that, – that moment at White's Creek, I will forever take into my, you know, history for sure. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the legacy of TSU's aristocrat of bands with assistant band director Larry Jenkins – and former member Austin A. Wille Wille. So, Larry, he was just talking about soul stepping and, and the vibe that he yes. got from that first band he was in. And that's that HBCU style. It's fresh. It's exciting to watch. But it can't be easy. Tell me, what type of work goes into preparing for that kind, of, for the performances that y'all do every weekend at football games? Ooh-wee. So this starts in the summer. Um, and I always say the band is the hardest working entity on campus. No disrespect. But the band, I'm telling you, the, the work that we put in is insane. So we used, we have four days. We call it pre-drill. Some say band camp. We say pre-drill. Um, and in pre-drill, we have four days. We start at 6 in the morning, music rehearsals. We go outside. and um, I'm sorry, not music rehearsals. We're outside working out, getting in shape because it takes a lot of conditioning to do what we do. After we eat, we're in music rehearsal, and we do music rehearsals for those two um, at the most hot parts of the day. Mm. Then at the end of the day, we're back outside. Usually that's about 6 o'clock, and we're drilling, sweeping the field. I mean, sweeping the field means we're marching around, making sure we're keeping our lines straight. Everything you can think of that you see on the field is intentional. You know what I mean? And that takes some work. That takes a lot of physical conditioning. We're really athletes. You know, I've seen people say band is a sport. Band really operates like a sport, so it's a lot of uh, conditioning and everything to get that done. So in August, it's not just the football team out there doing two-a-days. Y'all are doing four-a-days, kind of. Four-a-days, and it's not a game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's wild. So, you know, with all that action, it I'm sure it makes it tough to read sheet music, if even possible. AOLA, you, you're working on memory. You're working from memory out there, right? Oh, yes, yes, full-blown. Full and I think, you know, um, people don't realize that we – during this pre-drill time, you know, like he said, um, those two indoor practices, we are learning so much music in 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 that time. I mean, by by the time you hear the band on the field, the first game, we have learned 30, 35, 40 songs, mm-hmm. you know, by memory, you know, which means that we have to go into these sectionals and really drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it in, you know. But, I mean, what that does – for me personally, you know, as a musician who's currently, you know, out in the scene working, oh man, that gave me all the tools that I needed. Like, yeah. like what kind? Describe them. So me. I'm, a, I'm an improvisational person, right? So I play solos, and that I'm a, I'm a solo killer. That's what I do. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the idea of learning, you know, these intervals, um, learning all this music uh, by ear, you know, you, you never that that music never leaves you. Mm. You know, I could pick up a sax and play a song that I learned. You know. Um, I mean, you know, from 10 years ago and watching in a band right now, just because, you know, that muscle memory was, was drilled in so hard that it, it, it really helped with that type of skill. And when you're playing solos, all you're doing is pulling from memory and playing things that you know have heard. Mm-hmm. Now, this this part, this is all like a part of a really deep legacy. And it's more than just being in a band to pass time or to, to satisfy some sort of credit. Mm-hmm. Larry, how much of this legacy... How much of that is a part of it for the students? You know what? 
Um, I think it's a big part of it for the students. But again, I think the moment that it'll really hit them is when some time passes and they look back. And, you know, that's that's when the legacy is starting to become the legacy. You know, this is that, that early stage of it where they're in it. And they, they I think they understand the gravity of the legacy. But when you go back, you know, 10 years from now and you're listening to and you're letting somebody hear, this was when we were in the band. We mm. did this. You know, we were the first to do my year. That's, you know, that's a class of 22. Our year, we were the first ones to do this. That's when I really, really think that it's going to hit them and hit them hard. I see you smiling. Tell me, what does it mean to shepherd in, you know, this new era and in innovation for the aristocratic bands? It's it's humbling, I think, to, to, to be able to be a part of that, you know, part of its inception. Um, because that's that's legacy for uh, you know myself as well for the rest of the band directors. This 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 is something that's is special that we can keep with us forever. And um, this in the same light that I was talking about the students, you know, I look forward to looking back at some time and saying, "Wow, we did that. We created that. We started that." You know what I mean? And at the same time, you know, to know that we touched so many people from some of the texts and videos that I've seen. Um, you know, it's it's been some that. I've been emotional or made me emotional to the point where, you know, I'm tearing up mm -hmm. seeing how this is, um, you know, affecting people and positively, positively impacting people. So, yeah, this is, yeah, it's, it's hard to even conceptualize completely now. Um, it's, it's just, it's legacy work. It really looks like this is a family for all of you, not just a band. This is like forever you're bonded together. Hey, well, hey, I wonder, you know, you're a professional musician playing. Have you ever collaborated with, any of your former bandmates or other alumni of the AOB? Oh, yes, most certainly. Um, for one, uh, my brother, um, who I play alongside with, we've toured the world. Um, he's the drummer for Adia Victoria. Um, he goes by uh, Daddy Naps, Naps, uh, Tim Beatty. He was, uh, you know, drumline, uh, snare drummer on, on, the, on the line there, you know. Um, my brother Double A, who's also a big part yeah. of, um, the album here. I mean, me and him have worked on, you know, so we got so much music in the chamber and things that we still working on to um till this day. Uh, I mean, even between me and Larry, you know, I mean, we we've done stuff, we've done shows. Absolutely. I mean, we we've been a part of, you know, it it's a it's a family. It's a family. And not only is it a family, it's a talented family. You know? And so when you think about the people who are from this family who are going off to do music, when the opportunities come, those are the first people I look to, you know. I mean, for for as soon as something happens, boom! I turn to to the to the right and to the left is somebody who was a part of that same journey in the in the marching band, and I say, "Hey, let's do it! Come on, mm. Larry." Considering this moment of innovation, what do you see in the future for the aristocratic bands? You know, in the future, I see us continuing um, to in innovate. I think we found us a lane um, doing what we did. So I think we'll we'll continue to steer that ship and kind of uh, lead the way in regards to you know what we just did, and then opening up new opportunities because I think really what's going to happen from what we did is going to one inspire um, you know others to do something similar, um, but also being in the forefront of it and leading it is going to open new opportunities for some doors we probably don't even know about yet. You know what I mean? Some new opportunities, some new um, inventions, some new concepts. All these things, I think, will come about as we continue to move forward with what we're doing uh, with this. That is Larry Jenkins, 
assistant band director at Tennessee State University. He was joined by saxophonist, music teacher, and AOB alum, Austin Awale Wille. Larry Awale, thank you so much for being here, and keep on making beautiful music. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this rebroadcast of our 2022 episode on TSU's Aristocrat of Bands, which just made history last night by winning a Grammy for Best Roots Gospel Album. After the break, we'll turn to the next generation of marching bands. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Le Colonna, and this is Nashville. When I was in high school, our marching band was not very exciting. They lacked the spark that got people to perk their ears and pay attention during halftime. It's a lot of pressure for young musicians to move the crowd to the edge of their seats. My next guests know what it takes. Eleni Miller is the John Overton High School Band Director, and she's joined by one of her students, sousaphone player and Overton Junior, Jamin Jackson. Eleni, Jamin, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you so much. We are so excited to be here today. Really excited to have you both. So, so Eleni, tell me, I understand you grew up in a musical family. So is that where your interest in marching bands first formed? It totally is. Both of my parents are actually music educators and I have two older brothers and they both play instruments and um, I got to watch them go through the process of joining marching band and going through the high school and college careers playing in marching band and I developed a deep love for the activity and here I am today as a band director doing okay. it myself. You're a band director but this is pretty cool. What led you back to your alma mater John Overton High to become the band director? Yeah, so it's funny. When I was in high school, I was like, oh, no, I'll never come back here, even though I, I loved it deeply. Mm -hmm. But it's funny. I People say never say never. <laughs> um, but as I went through college and realized I wanted to stay in Nashville, um, it was important to me to give back to something that meant so much to me when I was younger. And it kind of created me and like developed me and helped me become who I am today. And so that was really important to me that I come back here and try to give kids the same opportunities that I had. So in the time that you've been here, you've made quite an impact. Tell me, what's the history of the marching band at John Overton? Yeah, so Overton has had a very rich history of competitive marching band, um, from state championships to participating in BOA. Um, it's been very, very competitive focused. And this year, we've kind of made an adjustment. We've made a shift to more of a community-based structure. So how did you change that band's approach? So over the past couple of years, I've kind of been observing um, our audience's reactions to our shows. And we were finding that we weren't getting as much engagement and connectivity with our audiences. And so we kind of stood back and took an Eagle Vision approach last year, trying to figure out, okay, what can we do to make this more of a community focused ensemble? What can we do to connect with our audiences, with our student section, with our football team, with the overall Nashville community. And we decided the first step would be to kind of change what our musical selections were. 
if the audience can recognize the music that you're playing, that's an immediate connection that they're going to have. And so this year we're playing songs by Beyonce, Eminem, Charlie Puth, Little Nas X, mm. a little bit of Christina Aguilera in there. And we have really found that almost immediately our audiences have been engaged. And it's been so fun to see them interacting with us during our halftime performances. I wonder, have any like students come up to you and just been saying to you, thank you, thank you for playing these songs that they can relate to? I think they were a little bit hesitant at first, like what is this actually gonna look like with it being our first year? But after our first game, we always huddle up after our performances and talk about, you know, what did we do well? What did we still need to work on? And you could just tell on their faces, like there were smiles all around. And from that moment, I felt validated, like, okay, we made the right decision. We're moving in the right direction. Um, and ever since then, it's been, it's been really exciting and the kids have been super happy. And we're going to hear a little bit of that sound from you all in a second, but I want to bring Jamin in. So Jamin, tell me, why did you join the Overton Marching Band? Uh, I would say there are uh, quite a few reasons. Uh, when I was in the eighth grade, uh, our school, Oliver, we came to John Overton for a little bit of like a band meetup kind of thing where we got to perform with the John, John Overton marching band. And uh, we got to be on the field. We got to play songs with them in the stands. And that was a introduction to marching band to me. And also when I also got into uh, Overton, I didn't actually play a lot of the instruments that uh, were often played. I played bassoon. And so I had to move to sousaphone, but uh, uh, Miss Miller, she gave me a fantastic introdu introduction to the sousaphone and really showed me, hey, uh, the marching band is fun. This is gonna be a great experience. and This is gonna be a great community, so yeah. Now, Eleni, do you remember the first time you heard Jamin on the sousaphone? Uh, yes, I certainly do. It's funny because, you know, he is a bassoon player, so you don't really know what would be a good transitional instrument for him going into marching band. And we kind of needed some sousaphones. We were kind of low on that instrument. And so I was like, you know what? Let's see how this goes. And I, I gave him a mouthpiece to start and I explained, all right, this is how you set your lips. This is how you buzz. This is how you blow air through it. And I was like, let's just see how it goes. And he put that mouthpiece up and he buzzed and he blew some air and it was absolutely beautiful. And I was like, hmm. okay, let's, let's put the sousaphone together and see what you sound like. Gorgeous, round, full sound. I said, yes, this instrument was meant for you. You're in. <laughs> <laughs> Jamin, how did it feel to you? Oh, it felt amazing. I was like, I, I was, I didn't expect a, especially going from that difference of an instrument. I didn't expect it to sound that good. And when I first played it, I like played it in front of, the rest of the ensemble and they're like oh that that's <laughs> like that's pretty good so uh yeah that's that's great <laughs> now Aleni, you talked about the changes you met you made in your program we have a clip that shows the direction that overton's band has been going in here they are performing christina aguilera's genie in a bottle
All right, so that's a short clip of Overton performing part of their so-called mixtape melody of medley of pop hits. Eleni, so how did the student body really react to the band playing those modern and familiar songs? I cannot even explain to you how relieved I felt after our first performance. The audience has never been as participatory as they have been this year. I mean, screaming in the middle of songs, screaming after songs, screaming at the end of the show. We've been to away games this year where the, um, the home team is standing up and giving us standing ovations. In fact, mm. we went to one this year where the kids, the student section of the other team had this megaphone and they started like chanting part of our songs, like rapping part of our songs after we were completely off of the field and coming up to us and we had our break and talking to the kids and they were so interested in what we were doing. So that was such a great feeling. That's awesome. I want to bring in my next guest. Johnny Croft is the band director at Cane Ridge High School with 18 years experience as band director under his belt. Johnny, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really a pleasure. Now, you helped change the culture at Cane Ridge. Is that right? Yes, the band played a, a, a bit of a role in changing that culture here so, at the school. So tell me, what was the band like before you changed things up? Uh, the, band, the band here at Cane Ridge was not um, considered at the time that I came. Um, was not considered like really just a part of the community of the school, right? It was it was in the school, but it was it was one of those like things that people kind of shied away from. What were some of the things that would happen? Um, well, you know, um, just just building community, just building community within the band. Um, which later on spread outside the band, band uh, which made people want to come and be a part of the band. Um, like, you know, beforehand, I guess, I don't know, I, I can't speak on what was, you know, before me, but I know that um, the community-based type of thing was not being built within the school. So you were lifting up the members of the bands, you were lifting up their spirits. Right, what yes. What did you do to motivate them, to get them excited about this new style you were bringing? Well, similar to what Elaine was saying over there at Overton, uh, we started playing more, more, more tunes that people recognize, more things that were, were popular. You know, like Michael Jackson, Bruno Mars, um, those type of those type of things, and uh, when they recognize those songs, it makes them you know flock to them. Beyonce, all those popular artists that are out here today. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We've been talking this hour about the rich tradition of marching bands in Music City. Right now, we're talking with the next generation with high school band directors Johnny Croft and Eleni Miller and student Jamin Jackson. So, Johnny, you're an alum of TSU and the aristocrat of bands. So yes, how, how did you channel that experience you got there into your band at Cane Ridge? Oh, wow. So I, my, my matriculation through TSU as a, as a student, um, 
afforded me a lot of opportunities, you know, to travel and do different things and just to see a crowd reaction when you put on a good show. And I wanted my students to get that same feeling, right? So, you know, when they do a show well and the crowd recognizes it and people start singing along with it within the crowd and, and um, I wanted my students to experience that same feeling as well as travel to different places. You know, we've been to Washington, D.C. We've been to um, New Orleans, Louisiana. We've been kind of all the Mid-South, Alabama, um, Georgia, and everywhere like that as well. Mm -hmm. here's, a, here's a clip of one of Johnny Croft's arrangements for the Cane Ridge High School Band. They're in the bleachers bouncing in unison as they performed the song The Show last year. All right, that's a classic hip-hop song. I mean, that song is nearly 40 years old. So, Johnny, when you see your students bounce into this music, what is going through your mind? Like, wow, music transcends generations, transcends time, good music. Um, it could be 30, 40 years old. People recognize good music. You could hear the audience in that clip, too, while you were playing it. Mm -hmm. um, you could hear them you know, reacting and cheering along. So, you know, the student, it, it lifts them up. It makes them, it energizes them. It wants them, you know, it helps them to perform better. It's, it's a brilliant way to expose younger audiences to new music and old music as well. H have any students ever asked to learn older songs that, that still rock, still got a bump to them? Uh, all the time. I'm the one who says we need to play the newer stuff. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Earth, Wind and Fire and, um, you know, those heavy horn um, type of deals that they had in the 70s and 80s, Tower of Power and all that stuff. Rick James. Mm -hmm. They're like, we need to play that. We need. I'm like, well, and let's play some like some current stuff, too. You know, so we have a nice mix. That's a nice little role reversal. I love it. Now, <laughs> now Eleni, how would you, how would you like to see the influence of marching bands develop? I think just more of this focus on community and connecting with your your school, supporting your football team, traveling to away games, um, and just supporting all the types of like variety that there is in marching band right now. Because there's a lot going on in different districts within a district. So I would just like to see you know, a good focus on community and whatever really that means for you. Have you ever taken your students in your band to see a TSU performance? We have not, but I would absolutely love to. That album is amazing. It's popping. It's popping. Now, yeah. now, Jamin, you know, to any younger person who may hear this one day or today, what do you have to say to them about being in a marching band? Why would you encourage them to do it? Uh, uh, one being in a marching band it's like such a good community experience you know like and once you get in there like 
you may be like, oh, I got to learn a new instrument. Oh, I got to learn this new dance we got to do. But in reality, it's just a bunch of people just getting together, learning an art. It's so nice to see like people having fun on the field. Like, even though we are working hard, like students are still like, uh, hey, this is, this is a really cool dance. This is a really good part in the song. Like, it's just a very wide sense of community. Even with other marching bands, we perform at away games and we look at the other band in the stands and they're waving to us and we're waving to them. Like it's a competition, but it's also a chance to see here's how these, he's how, here's how these students are playing their songs. And here's how, how we are playing our songs and we're going to show them and they're going to show us. It's just so nice. How's it feel when you look up into the stands when you're playing and you see your friends, your classmates who aren't in band, just kind of rocking out and vibing with you all? I just see it as like, uh, they're also sharing this sense of community that we have, that we have almost on a daily basis, but they get to see it like on a bigger scale, on a more professional scale on our games. And it just feels so good feeding off of their energy. Now, Johnny, tell me, where would you like to see the future of high school marching bands go? Well, the future of high school marching bands. I would like to see, um, like to see them keep moving in an upward direction um, with, you know, just with positive and more participation because, you know, they're doing things positive. The studies have shown that, you know, marching band and just band in general has several different effects for the student, you know, sense of responsibility, multitask, um, discipline, teamwork, commitment, time management, um, personal growth, and leadership mm-hmm. are just some, just to name a few. That is Johnny Croft, Cane Ridge High School Band Director. He was joined by Jamin Jackson, junior at John Overton High School and sousaphone player in the marching band, and Overton's band director, Eleni Miller. Thank you all for being here. Really appreciate it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're talking about policing after the brutal police beating and death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols in Memphis. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Tony Gonzalez, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Demir Blade. Special thanks to Jeff Smith. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Le Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>